0: it's Genesis 1 is where we're going to be today, first chapter. Last week, we began a six-week series uh, in the first three. We're just going to be in these first three chapters of the Bible, uh, and we're calling this series Created. And what I said last week was that our goal in looking at these three chapters is to uncover our created purpose, because knowing what you're created for, knowing your purpose in this life, it gives you Confidence, right? Confidence in decision making. In fact, it even relieves anxiety in decision making because you know, listen, if this decision helps me achieve my purpose, that's how I'm going to measure it by. And you start to have clarity, right? And confidence in decision making and in every other area of life, of peace, patience with everything else that you have in life. And what we said last week is that in our day, it's easy to confuse that all important purpose, what we're created for, with our passions right? Purpose, what we exist for, we can confuse it with our passions, the things that we get excited about. Passions are right and important to have, but they must grow out of our purpose in life. And when we don't know our purpose, what happens though? Our passions start to become our purpose. They take that seat, which makes us into the kind of people that find our identity in our passions. And then we become the kind of people that get obsessed with things that no matter what they are will never really satisfy us. And we start to have things that people call identity crisis, right? Like we move from I like this sport, I like to play this sport, to my whole world is wrapped up in this sport, and I don't know who I would be if I didn't have this sport that I was playing. But then what happens is we get uh, our knee blows out, and we can no longer play that sport. And all of a sudden we say, I don't know who I am without football, without basketball, without I don't know who I am. Same thing happens with relationships, right? You move from, I like this girl, I like this guy, to, girl, you complete me, right? To like, my whole world is wrapped up in you. Well, that's terrible, right? And what happens, eventually, you drown or suffocate that person from all of your emotional baggage, and they bounce, and you're like, now, I don't know who I am, right? You are never meant to find your purpose in that person. You move from, even I've seen this, you move from watching a sport, like just being a fan. This is new to me to here in Charlotte, though. You move from watching a sport to spending more money on the Panthers than you on your family, right? And you're shocked when the Panthers don't love you back or something, right? You move from loving your kids to helicoptering over their every move, from doing work to living heart and soul for your work. Y'all, our passions were never meant to be our purpose. In fact, it's the other way around. And when we know and live for our purpose in life, our passions can actually become healthy extensions of our purpose that we find joy in, and they will bless the world around us. So last week, we started in verse 1 of chapter 1. We made it all the way to verse 2, dipped our toe in verse 3 a little bit. Um, and what we said was, if you, know you want to know what you're created for, you got to know who you were created by. So the bulk of last week was spent looking at God himself And and I tell you, just if you want to catch up, get with us, um, get on the same page with us, go and and check last week's sermon out. Today, we're going to start in verse 3. And we're going to go all the way to verse 31, so we're going to cover a little more ground. I'm going to show you the creation story of Genesis 1. And I'm going to show you how central it is to understanding what you were created for. Really, y'all, I feel like in a lot of ways, this Genesis 1 is like the title track of our series. and, And here is kind of the thing I want you to leave today with in its simplest form. Listen, God cares more about who you are created to be than what you are created to do. That's the thing I want you to leave today with as you watch creation unfold. You're created when it comes to your purpose, what you exist for. God cares more about who you're created to be than what you're created to do. I'm telling you, this shift in thinking and understanding God and how you relate to him it really might relieve a lot of anxiety in your life today. We often talk about, man, I want to know what God's will for my life is. What am I supposed to do? And we think about it like they're um, competing doors, right? Different options behind different doors. Do I take door number one or door number two? That's also, That question, that perspective is centered around doing, right? For the one wanting to know God's will for his or her life, the first question it poses is not what should I do, but who should I be? Who should I be? He cares about what you do, yes, but what you do should always flow out of who you are. So today, as we look into the creation account, that's the question I want to answer. Who are we? Last week was about who you're created by. We looked at God. Now we're building on that by looking at who God created you to be. Now, there's a couple of potential problems with this, okay? Going through Genesis 1. Let's be just honest, kind of candid with each other, where we are. A couple of potential problems, talking about Genesis 1 in a church gathering. There's familiarity, and there's suspicion, All right, familiarity says maybe you think you know Genesis 1. You've been around church before, maybe you grew up in church, been around it a lot, maybe you've been around the Bible, and so you kind of file Genesis 1 away as this sort of quaint story that is fun to tell kids, but doesn't really impact your life. The problem with that is, this is one of the top three passages in Scripture, maybe the top one, definitely one of the top three for understanding who God created you to be. And so you have to, if that's you right now, you're super familiar with this passage, you have to suspend that familiarity and probably pray in your own heart and and mind for God to give you like a fresh pair of eyes to see him and to see who created you to be, who he created you to be. The second problem, of course, is suspicion, right? Maybe you hear a creation story and your defenses go up, right, and you see this is why, this is why I have trouble believing Christianity and why I can't take people seriously Who believe this silly myth that's recounted in Genesis 1. If if that's you, that's fine. That's okay to be there. Now, I will say often people are there because they've heard a couple of sound bites about what supposedly Christians believe instead of actually hearing it from the text itself. But listen, if you carry that suspicion into this account, all I'm asking you to do today, look, you're already here, you're already sitting here, we ain't going anywhere for the next little bit, is to kind of Set that on the shelf and listen, just listen and consider what God is saying here in Genesis 1. So we're gonna divide up the chapter by days like Moses does, our author. You, listen, human, you'll show up till day six, all right? But your created purpose is so tied to the rest of creation, God sets you in the lineup. So we're gonna walk through the passage finishing in who you're created to be. I'm, I'm really excited about this, but here's the thing. It's like I'm trying to tell you about the glory of creation, and that's like impossible, okay? So you got to like just sit, and that's why we're going to show you so much scripture today just as we walk through Genesis 1. I want you to see the beauty and awe and grandeur of God and get a little bit lost in it, all right? Day one, you ready? Good. Front row's ready. Let's go. Day one, light and dark. I'm going to show you, I'm just going to have you labels for these days to help you take notes, walk through it, reconsider it. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. There was an evening, there was a morning, one day. Right here, opening day, I want you to see the theme that will be repeated throughout the creation story. It's intentional by Moses. He builds, what he's doing is he's building towards your understanding of how you fit into this whole thing. Here is creation's theme that you're gonna see repeated. God said, it was and it was good. So God said, and then what God said just was, and it was good. Catch the power here. There's nothing but darkness and emptiness, and then the way that light came to be was what? God said. He said, and then there was light. His one creative tool, the only tool he used was his speech. That's all. There's no raw materials that God is using to shape the world into the way it is. There's nothing, no matter, no substance. And then with his words, God creates the vast expanse of the heavens. God creates the tiny molecule. And it's intended to appear to us, the way Moses is writing it, for, for this to be easy for God and for this to be beautiful. Like at, at the same time, easy and beautiful. Um, see, I've told you guys, one of my favorite book series is the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, C.S. Lewis tries to capture this scene and, and give us some more words to it when he talks. So he has his, one of his, really his main character, Aslan the lion, and he has the lion start to sing. And as the lion sings, the world starts to form around him. So he begins a song and like green appears around his feet. And as he as the song starts to tick up just a little bit, the hillsides kind of go out from under his feet and start to appear. He starts to sing louder and the birds start to come out of the trees. And creation goes even wilder as the song crescendos. And what Lewis is just trying his best to do is say, look, when creation happened, it was beautiful and it was just the words of God, just the voice of God. and It was beautiful and it was Powerful. That's what Moses is trying to make so prominent, so prominent that you can't read the creation account and miss it. The point that Israel needed to hear as they're wandering aimlessly around the wilderness, that's how they, they felt. And maybe where you are wandering through life right now, what you need to hear is God's words are powerful and they are life giving. That's what his words are to us powerful. They create from nothing. And they give life. They give life, which means what he says over you has power. Listen, sometimes we get into like, like a spiritual funk. And usually what happens is we're spending a lot of time listening to ourselves, listening to what others say about us. And we just kind of file God's words away in the background as a Bible we just leave on our shelf. But 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, all scripture is breathed out by God. That's an intentional word choice by Paul, looking back at creation and saying, all of scripture, all these promises, these are God's words spoken over you, which means when you believe and they'll give you life. I um, spent some time with our, uh, just a little, just a moment with our high school community group uh, this morning and asked them, because that's a great place to go and just kind of get the answers for your sermon and figure it all out. So we're sitting there this morning talking and I just asked them, what's your favorite promise? And Ray, one of our guys, he said, said, so, man, well, an obvious one is that we get eternal life. And I was like, oh, yeah. Here I am, the pastor. going. I was trying to, like, think of all these small things and the obvious one that I'd just forgotten about, John 3.16. Right? By believing in him, you have eternal life. That's a promise spoken out by God. And because God speaks it, it's not just some sort of detached doctrine. You actually get life. Right? Romans 8.1. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's not just doctrine. That is the words of God spoken over you that have made a mess of your life. The sin that you've done has wrecked your life and God comes along and says, no, you believe that Christ has died for your sin. You can have life and the spirit gives you new life, recreates you. It's power in God's words and it's all life giving. And in fact, your purpose is set by those words and God looks at all that God does all that and then he looks at the light and he says it was good almost every day at the end of his creation work day God's going to look at creation and say that's good it's like the artist stepping back right after he's done and being satisfied with what he's created and listen when God says good what does that mean well Psalm 19:1 gives us the clue to that Psalm 19:1 says that heavens declare the glory of God. But why is it good? Because it's doing what its purpose is is to declare the glory of God. The expanse above or the sky above proclaims His handiwork. right? It's telling the reason that it's good is because it's doing what it's created to do, which is to tell about the glory of God, which means the weight, magnificent importance of God. That's what it's doing, and because it's doing what it is supposed to do, it's good. And so as you see, we're going to see it. I I told you, God said it was and it was good. And every time when God creates, the reason it's good is because it's showing us and communicating and telling us more about this God. And that's really all, as we go through Genesis 1, what you're seeing is it's just God. It's God on display again and again in all of his power. You know, again, this is going to come more fully, I think, into view in a few weeks as we look at how we are created uh, male and female in his image. We're going to talk about that more but it was beautiful, it was rightly ordered, it was beneficial for mankind. But here's what you and I, what I imagine you're thinking right now, or at least I would be, if this is all so good, so beautiful, so orderly, then how come when I look at the world around me, when I look at the natural disorder like the hurricane that I saw, or the interpersonal humanity's own evil like we're seeing in the, all over the news just this week, the world doesn't seem good, right? I think about, um, there's this little place up in Concord called the Great Wolf Lodge. Any of you guys ever been to the Great Wolf Lodge? Okay, a handful have been. All right, for those of you who hadn't been, it's a water park that's indoors and you can sleep there. They got a hotel that's a part of it, okay? Um, and it's themed out as the Great Wolf Lodge. So there's this great wolf and he's great. Um, and that's the, the basic thing. But they do this thing um, every night at 8.15. There's this little story time and it's done by these like animatronic A little group of uh, just animals, and the story is there's this kid who's gotten lost in the woods, and then the animals sing to him to comfort him. And here's what they say. They say, there's nothing to be scared of around here. Trust in mother nature, nothing to, and I looked at my kids and I said, that is a lie. You find yourself in the woods at night, do not go hug the wolf, right? He's not going to sing you to sleep, give you some snacks, and send you back to mom and dad, you're the snack, right? That's not gonna work. And I'm looking at, it like, of course, the way God originally created the world, that's not the world that we experience, right? It's just not all good. There is evil of the worst kind out there. So, how in the world can Genesis 1 possibly be true? Well, either, here are our options either it's not true, number one, or it is true and something happened to change the world into what it is now. And if the latter is true, that the world has indeed changed from when it was all good, that would explain why the world doesn't feel right to me. See, the Christian message says that cancer, job loss, divorce, assault, these things are not a part of the good that God created. Something happened. That's why we're in Genesis 1 through 3 is to explain what happened. and then, look, Something happened. But then God is going to do something about it. And that's where the hope of the whole Christian message comes from. You're going to see. One more thing I want you to see in day one. It's the immediate contrasting of light and darkness. God says the light is good, but he doesn't say that about the darkness. For the rest of Scripture, this image is used to communicate a very giant, yet very personal, personal truth. Throughout Scripture, light pushes back darkness all the way to the very end of the last chapter of the Bible. Sometimes it'll look like darkness is winning, but then Christ comes along and John's gospel says he is the light of life and the darkness will never overcome him. Matthew says of Jesus's arrival, he's quoting Isaiah and he says, the people who were once walking in darkness have now seen a great light. Look, in the Bible, just here's a little like key for you as you're walking through the the Bible, you're newer to the Bible, darkness equals sin leading to death. That's the metaphor. Darkness equals sin leading to death and light equals life through Christ. You gotta connect that. When you see darkness and light, that's what you're seeing. Sin leading to death, but there's victory over that darkness and it's life through Christ. So if you are in darkness right now, I know some of you are. You are hiding your sin and you're, you're getting pretty good at it so that nobody else knows about it, I just want you to know, there is no like dark alleyway that you can escape hatch where you can walk out of it without anybody knowing about it and it's all gonna be okay and that'll just be the thing in your past. The only way out is to bring it into the light of Christ, to confess it, to trust Christ's forgiving work on your behalf. You were created not to live in darkness, but in the eternal light of God and that's only found through Christ. That's day one. God said, it was, and it was good. Let's look at day two. The skies. Verse six, then God said, by the way, you're gonna start to see the pattern. God said, you might even wanna underline it in your Bible. God said, every time is say, God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse. And it was so. God called this expanse sky. Evening and morning came the second day. And you might get Hung up on this. I said the word expanse like five times really quick. Um, You might get hung up on what's the expanse between the waters. It's an odd phrasing for 21st century English readers. The water below probably makes sense to you ocean, right? The sky makes sense, like the sky where the birds fly. But then there's more water above. What is that? A couple of things here. The water just means, most likely means the clouds because the clouds hold the waters above. That's why this expanse is going to be referred to as the floodgates of heaven later in scripture. We've got to remember Moses is writing to everyday Israelites that are wandering around in the wilderness, and he's explaining to them what they see around them, right? So we read an everyday understanding into this picture and realize it's rain clouds. There's the waters, there's the sky that the birds fly in, and above them are the clouds where the rain comes from. And by the way, since we are dipping our toe into scientific natural observation, one of the huge questions people have is, okay, how long were these days and how much time was between day one and day two and how many was this six 24-hour days or are these days representing periods of time? Listen, I'm not gonna answer that question here, maybe to your chagrin, but it's because I wanna honor the purpose of this passage. The purpose is to show you over and over again, God said, it was, and it was good. So men and women of great faith And great intellect have disagreed over whether or not God created the world in six literal days or figurative days, okay? To dwell on that, by the way, and more importantly, to be dogmatic about that. So to say, well, if you believe this, then you are wrong. You're just an outright heretic. To be dogmatic about that would be to major on something the Bible did not major on. When the Bible talks about God, it talks about him as creator, this amazing creator who created the world. It doesn't spend time saying, and this is how long it took him. no. Martin Luther, one of the greatest theologians in history, believes one thing. Augustine, the other greatest theologian in history, believes the other. So you got to side with one of them and call the other one just wrong about everything if you get dogmatic about it, all right? The point is, and the point that every, every major theologian throughout church history is going to say is, God did it. God said it was, and it was good. And listen, it's all well and good to explore the details like time. In fact, that's what the scientific method is, is for, the way Dr. Francis Collins says it, he said, he's one of the most foremost scientific minds. And he says, the more I study God's creation, the more I worship the God who created it. All right, so dig in and study to see more of who God is. But the point of the creation account, God said it was, and it was good. All right, let's go to day three. Day three. Woo! I get so excited about this, I even snort from time to time. All right, day three. The land, the seas, and the veggies. Here we go, verse nine. Then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Verse 10, God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the water he called seas and God saw that it was good. In verses 11 through 13, he's going to say, let the earth produce vegetation. And so the earth produces vegetation and God saw that it was good. I'm not gonna take long here. It's pretty straightforward. The pattern's becoming clear. God said it was, and it was good. I do want to recognize that Moses is writing against the backdrop, like I said last week, where they left Egypt. And Egypt had gods for the harvest, God for the sun, a God for the moon, God for the stars. And Moses, by just saying God said, the one God said, he's dismissing all of those gods without even bringing them up, which is the same thing that scripture's gonna do Throughout, it's gonna say there are things in our lives that we start to worship, our passions that start to become our purpose and we start to worship them and they need to fall away. They don't even, the Bible doesn't even give them credit. just says they're little wooden idols compared to the one true God. God created everything. Day four, sun, moon, and stars. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for seasons and for days and years. They will be lights in the expanse to provide, uh, excuse me, the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. And it was so. God made the sun. God made the moon. God made the stars. And God saw that it was good. God said it was, and it was good. There's a um, a very famous mathematician and philosopher, you probably heard the name, Sir Isaac Newton. Right, Sir Isaac Newton um, he was back 17th century, and he was known for just his love and study for astronomy, right? And so he's got this thing that he, he had built that, that was this fascinating thing, especially in his day that had the, it was a model of our solar system. So it had this golden sphere at the center of it that was really big. It had the smaller spheres. They were all connected by gears and cogs and belts and stuff, and they would rotate in perfect symmetry and orbit, and in his day, that was just, you couldn't find anything like that. So one of his, uh, he gets it all set up in his study. He's in his study one day, and one of his friends was an atheist. They had a, a good, long friendship where they would debate about whether or not God is real and everything. Anyways, this atheist comes walking in to his study, and he sees this thing for the first time, and he goes, whoa, who made that for you? Isaac Newton, being the smart dude that he was, didn't even look up from his book, and he said, nobody. And the guy said, what? Of course, somebody made it. Who made this for you? He said, he said, oh, nobody made it. All these balls and cogs and belts and gears just happened to come together and wonder of wonders, by chance, they begin revolving in perfect orbit and timing. Right, well, see, he's making the most of the moment that he has with his friend there. Like, of course, of course somebody put this together. And that's what all of the creation account is trying to tell you. Of course somebody put all of this and flung the stars and the skies and the moon and the earth and the planet all into motion. They're there to tell you about the glory of the one who put them there. And he did it with just his words. A, the guy that is considered by me to be the father of modern astronomy, Johannes Kepler, he said, the undevout astronomer is mad. What's he saying there? He's saying, the person that would spend their whole time studying the stars—if they don't see God, they must be crazy. That's what he was—he was getting at. Day five: sea creatures and birds. Then God said, "Let the waters swarm with living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky." And they, it happened. And God saw that it was good. So God blessed them: be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters of the seas, and Let the birds multiply on the earth. Day five, God is filling. In fact, days one through three, if you notice the pattern, God is forming. Days four through six, God is filling the earth, and it's good. And if you're at this point right now where you're saying, this creation thing is great, I get it, but why does it matter to me? Man, it's scattered all throughout. Jesus' words all throughout scripture, but just one example, Matthew 6. Jesus says, okay, look up. Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you more valuable to him than they. God put the birds in the air with a message. When you see them, you're supposed to see the heavenly father that created them. And so listen, if you struggle with anxiety and with fear, a very real cure, antidote to anxiety and fear is bird watching. Isn't that crazy? Like just go outside and see some birds. And it's just to calm you. In fact, maybe this will be good for you. Go outside. I've told you this before. Find a bird and say, hey, God loves me more than he loves you. I don't know. It's going to be weird if your neighbor hears you and sees what's going on, but maybe that'll help you get there. I don't know. But he provides for them, and he loves you way more than he loves the birds, which brings us to day six, where this all culminates. We'll divide it in two parts. Part one is the land creatures. God said, let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock, creatures that crawl, wildlife of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God saw that it was good. So now the earth is full. There's one thing left. Day six, part two. Human beings. Everything in the creation account has been building to this moment. Moses is going to talk about how mankind came to be. And when he does, something brand new happens. A couple of things brand new happen. Watch this. Verse 26. Then God said... Let us. So, God has just been saying, and it's just been happening, but now he adds a pronoun in there. Let us. If you have something to highlight, underline, that let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. God has just been saying, and it's just been being, but now... He's giving some qualifiers. Let us make man in our image. There's a a specific image that he's not given to the rest of the creation that he's given to mankind. They will rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all this stuff we spent all this time creating, they're the ones that are going to rule over it. 27. So God created man in his own image. And then for a fourth time, he created him in the image of God. And he clarifies to make sure we have no confusion about it. He created them male and female. Now, I'm sure you picked up on my subtle clue so far that this is an important part of the story. Every day of creation, God speaks something into existence, but day six, he changes into first-person plural. Let us make man in our image. For those of you that weren't here last week, this is an odd thing to hear a singular God say, let us do anything. Who's he talking to? We explained last week, this is one of the first nods to God revealing himself throughout the Bible as a trinity. And that is God in three persons, yet in one essence, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that's who God is, one being in three persons. And we are created in the image of, we are created as a reflection of that triune reality. Four times in those two verses, he said, we're gonna create them to be like him. He doesn't say it anywhere else in scripture about anything else, which means if you could travel 100 times the speed of light, soar around the Milky Way galaxy, seeing all the the vast expanse that the universe has to offer, if you could see the seven wonders of the natural world, it would be nothing compared to the beauty and grandeur of holding a newborn child. It would be nothing compared to just seeing your neighbor. So for the next three minutes, You're just gonna stare at your neighbor in the seat beside, now I'm playing, that'd be be weird. But you get my point, right? And look at what God says about it, verse 28. God blessed them, he blessed them, he said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, every creature that crawls on the earth. And it was so, because God said it. And God saw all that he had made and it wasn't just good. It was very good indeed. I want to take these last couple of minutes with creation in the backdrop, man now front and center, the very good centerpiece of his creation, and I want to show you what you were created, excuse me, who you were created to be. Here it is, one point. We are created to be image bearers. Created to be image bearers. Now, think about it. I mean, to be created in the image of God, it's kind of a wild idea, right? Again, I told you, you got to suspend familiarity if you've heard that before. Because obviously, we're not God. We don't have unlimited power or knowledge. We can't create, right? I know by now, some of you college freshmen have created some smells in your laundry basket, previously unknown to Western civilized world. I get that. But it still didn't come from nothing. To be created in God's image means that we are uniquely among creation, uniquely called to be his representatives on the earth. So we are therefore inherently valuable. We are valuable not because of what we do, but because of who God says we are. I'll give you an example of this. How many of you know who uh, Kim DeRoche is? Kim DeRoche. Maybe three people might know who that is in here. Not many. If you saw him on the street, think ordinary dude. But when you meet him, You find out he is the ambassador of the royal crown of the United Kingdom to the United States. All of a sudden, you treat him a little bit differently, right? You're going to ask him, how are Meghan and Harry doing? How are things going, right? We respect the ambassador because the ambassador speaks on behalf of the queen herself. When God says we are his image bearers, it means that every human being carries the seal of the kingdom of God with him or with her. This is why Christians care so much about every single person. It's because every single person, no matter how messed up their past, no matter how rich or poor, no matter how seemingly insignificant they are to the world, to Christians they carry the image of God. The 80-year-old woman lying without the use of her legs in a Cuban ghetto, she carries the image of God. The 16-year-old girl who just discovered she's pregnant, she carries the image of God. So does her new unborn child. That's why we stand up so clearly against abortion, but do so by trying to provide counsel, care, and options for the mother. Because it's not out of hate for anyone. It's out of respect for the mother and for the child, out of love for them, because they are made in the image of God. The refugee is an image bearer. The prostitute is an image bearer. The homeless man is an image bearer. Beginning of life to end of life, no matter who you are, the Christian message says you are valuable not because of what you do, but because of who you are. Parents, you are image bearers. It's so easy as parents to get lost in what we do, right? We want to do well for our children. We want our children to have it better than we do. And we work hard to give them the best, but far more important to God, which means far better for our kids in our role as a parent is who we are. Do our kids see the image of God in us? The greatest thing you can do for them is to be who God created you to be. Now, I recognize that that can feel abstract. What does being in the image of God look like? In action, because we so desperately want to do, right? All right, well, let me show you. This is where we look to Christ, Colossians 1. He, Christ, Colossians 1.15, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. God in his grace said, okay, you want to see what it looks like to be in my image? You want to see how to be an image bearer? Look to Christ. The author of Hebrews opens this. uh, The book of Hebrews is amazing. And the author opens with Christ is the exact imprint of God. Paul goes so far to connect it because Christ is God the Son. So to be made made in the image of God is to actually be made in the image of Christ. So Romans 8, he says, Those who he foreknew, us, he predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters to be in the image of God is to be in the image of Christ. So simply put, what is God's will for your life? Is to be like Christ. Now, sermons four and five in this series are gonna be devoted to how men live out that image and then how women live out that image. We're gonna show how unique passions can develop out of that common created purpose. But right here, let's talk about how we're supposed to be like Christ. Because that can be pretty cumbersome, pretty burdensome, because Christ happened to have been perfect. And what you and I see every day is that we're not. So be like Jesus could be this giant weight on our shoulders and it could weigh us down and actually drive us back into the performance-based religion that we so desperately don't want to be a part of. Here's how I want to say, how are you supposed to be like Christ? Listen, before Christ is the model for your life, he is the savior of your life. That's what you got to grab hold of. This this is the sense so much about the center of who we are as a church and what we proclaim. This order is everything. Christ isn't first the role model for the Christian faith. Broken people, right? Broken people who have disappointed others don't experience life-giving transformation by being told to behave differently. No, Christ is the savior at the center of our faith because we need saving. And Christ comes in. When we need saving because we keep sinning. And he comes in and he saves us by dying in our place for our sin. His blood cleanses us from that sin. This is why we're so big on the good news here at Mercy Church. This good news, this gospel is our only hope for being like Christ. That's our only hope. We will never be perfect. And our hope is when God says be like Christ is that he is going to look at us and he's going to see Christ as our covering over us. And he's gonna call us clean. He's gonna call us forgiven. And he's gonna call us son and daughter. This is why we call our church Mercy Church, because our only hope is the mercy of God. Or that's why we say um, all the time around here that the gospel is not the front door to the Christian house. The gospel is the house, right? It's the whole house. Because you think about it, you are called to love like Christ. Well, how do you love like Christ? Listen, to love like Christ, you must first abide in Christ. In fact, to live like Christ, you got to first abide in Christ, which means making your home in that gospel house, the love of Christ. You're called to love like Christ? The power for such sacrificial, constant love comes from abiding in the love of Christ for you. It comes from, this is why Christ says, John 15, make your home in my love. Make your home. I am the vine, John 15, I'm the vine, you are the branches. When you abide in my love, then you'll bear much fruit. You can't love rightly without first being loved by him. That's exhausting. It's what so many of us feel. It's why people are around church, around Christianity, and the, listen, in the Bible Belt, this is what happens. We do the Christian things that we were raised to do. If you're originally from the Bible Belt, this happens all the time, but then you get tired of it. Because you were never living out of the power of the love of God, you were just doing it to hopefully earn God's approval so you can get into heaven one day. It's not Christianity. It's not the gospel. That is performance-based religion is the opposite of what God calls you to. You're called to be, for example, patient like Christ. Where can we get that? You abide in the love of Christ that was so patient towards you while you're still running from him, yet he still offers you his love. You're called to forgive this will get real, right? Forgiveness, here's what, your sin against him was greater than any sin that person committed against you. <sighs> That's how the love of Christ, listen, that doesn't guilt you into forgiving. Now, here's what happens. When you experience that love, when you make your home in that love, it doesn't guilt you into, well, I got to love because Jesus loved. No, no, that love, when you, when you grab hold of it, when you abide in it, it heals you it heals you, it fills your soul, and then that love overflows to another and you have the power to forgive someone else because you have found healing in Christ. You're called to obey the authorities in your life. How can you do that? When you see the son submitting to the father, y'all, the gospel is not the front door, it's the house. Are you abiding in God's love for you? Let me pray for you. you. If you would, I wanna give you a second to respond to this, bow your head, close your eyes. If you are not a Christian, right now, this promise is not for you. You do not have the love of Christ covering you. And maybe you've been trying to perform your way to some sort of abiding by some sort of moral code where you do more right than wrong and you hope in the end something's going to work out for you. And the hope that you're hearing today is that you can never perform enough to earn God's love, but it's the promise of John 3 16. It's that simple promise that God so loved you. He so loved you that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would have life everlasting. Believe that he died for your sins and he can restore you and make you right with God. The way to believe that is simply, you just pray to him in your own heart and mind right now. I believe there are people here today that need to get right with God and maybe even trying a bunch of things. But the salvation you've been looking for, the identity you've been looking for, God says that's only found in Christ. You can have that forgiveness and that reconciliation to God right now. And he says simply, Repent and believe. Repent means to say to God, God, I'm turning from my sin. I'm done with it. I believe you died as a payment for my sins. That's what Jesus did. He died in my place. And because of that, you forgive me of my sins because you because Christ paid for them. I believe that now, and I'm giving you my life. Thank you, God, for saving me. Christian, remember that love. Confess your sin to Him. Remembering that love, He is patient towards you, He is forgiving towards you, He is loving towards you. Abide in that love right now. Thank you, God that you still love me. Thank you, God, when I take your love for granted. Thank you, God, for the hope I have in Christ. God, thank you for your great love in the cross. Thank you for your great power in the empty tomb. Because you got out of the grave, we have new life and life everlasting, and we worship you for it. We praise you. Oh, we praise you, Father. May we be a people that marvel at your creation, that's declaring your glory. May you make us into the image of Christ by drawing us back to your love. We'll be a people that rests in your love for us.